Hello, and welcome back to Equity, a podcast about the business of startups, where we unpack the numbers and the nuance behind the headlines. My name is Alex Wilhelm, and I am joined today on this live show with my dear friend, Marianne Azevedo. Marianne, hello. How is Austin? And I hear breakfast tacos are under attack. Oh, yes. Everything is great. I'm excited to be here. We have lots of fun stuff to talk about today. Yeah. A small note, Natasha is not with us because she had a death in the family earlier this week, as she said on Twitter. So she is taking some time to step back and process through that. And we love her and we will have her back as soon as she is ready. But Marianne and I are going to be at the helm today. Quite a lot to talk about. We're going to do a brief, brief, like two or three minutes tops overview about the latest in the Twitter Elon saga, because it is the biggest de facto story in technology today. We're going to talk about two deals for startups, Umaro and then Pony AI, very different parts of the world, different focuses, but both very interesting. Then we're going to talk a little bit about the Q1 pandemic update. And by that, we mean layoffs at certain companies and how they tie together to give us a better perspective about what is going on today in the world. And then <gasps> crypto for all ages. And should teens be buying Bitcoin? And then we'll wrap <laughs> with a couple notes about how you can now put Bitcoin into your Fidelity 401k. I've been getting questions from friends about that. So I have many, many opinions. Whew. But Marianne, before we actually start the formal news rundown, you, my dear friend, have an announcement. So tell people about your newsletter and uh, where they can get it. Yeah, I'm so excited. So for the past three months, I've been writing a column that's been called FinTech Roundup. Um, it's published every Sunday, but this Sunday, it will formally launch as a newsletter mm. that will hit inboxes. And it's called The Interchange, which Alex helped me come up with. I'm so grateful because it took forever to come up with a name yes. that I actually really felt pumped about. So please sign up, TechCrunch. Crunch.com. I think it's forward slash newsletters. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be great. I've been reading the the post version of this for some time and Marianne is my absolute filter and lens for all things fintech. So if you want to learn more about how money has been moved around by bits and bytes, well, it's for you. Okay. Let's go ahead and do our Twitter story. So Marianne, we've been talking about the Twitter Elon saga for a couple of weeks now, just catching everyone up just a little bit. The deal was essentially accepted in an informal capacity over the weekend. There still needs to be a vote and so forth. But Marianne, the drama did not die away once that happened. I want to start by talking about some terms of the deal and how Elon's misbehaving. So can you take us through... <laughs> What's going on? Yeah. So, I mean, one of the things that is kind of curious about what's happening is Elon's effectively offered to pay $43 billion for this company. One of the conditions of the deal, according to the formal language, is that the equity investor shall be permitted to issue tweets about the merger or the transactions contemplated hereby so long as such tweets do not disparage the company or any of its representatives. Fairly straightforward, right? Super straightforward. Right. Yet, he's still doing it. <laughs> yes. So not that we're really surprised by this, but still, it's like I, I it just strikes me as like a really kind of immature and unprofessional direction to take. Very immature, very unprofessional, calling out executives at the company that you're taking over to engender essentially a pile on by trolls is a poor use of influence, I think. If I saw my one of my friends doing that, I would call them and say, hey, why are you being such an you know? Yeah, right. And so to see someone with this amount of financial power do it is is lame. And also it's, it's a power imbalance that I find to be a little bit gross, but also like it's against the language. The agreement says it won't do this and then just does this. And right. I'm not going to say that I'm the biggest fan of regulation and I'm not going to say that I'm opposed to all rule breaking, but this does seem to be slightly egregious and in poor taste. It's actually led to some commentary, Marianne, that maybe he won't try to follow through with the deal. I don't really buy that given the work he's done to get here, but people are saying that. How much stock do you give that? I really don't know what to think anymore. I mean, part of me thinks he is very serious about it because he really just wants to control, you know, the platform. Yeah. But, you know, at the same time, it's like he just can't help himself. You know, he yeah. has to insult one of the top policy executives and he's very vocal on, on Twitter about his issues with the platform. So some might say that's him justifying his reason for wanting to take it over. 
Others might just say, you know, grow up. Yeah. And the lack of maturity on Musk's side doesn't bode well for a very important issue for the company. Twitter dropped earnings this morning and they outlined uh, kind of mixed results, I want to say. There were some issues with historical user reporting. There was some revenue growth. You can kind of look through the numbers yourself. But what really stood out to me was the fact that Twitter really is an advertising business still. Its other revenue streams are pretty modest. So Mm -hmm. just pulling from the data, in Q1, ad revenue at Twitter was $1.11 billion and subscription revenue was $94 million. Wow. That's like the vast, vast majority of revenue. Yes. And what advertisers love is a stable place that is non-controversial where they can deploy money to build brand equity. And Elon, by discussing removing perhaps some of the content controls that keeps out some of the toxicity on Twitter and also behaving like this probably doesn't engender a lot of confidence by advertisers that this is a a place they should be investing their money. And Twitter's already moving to kind of head this off to protect itself. But I mean, it's I'm curious to see how Tesla style management will mesh with a social media company. which is a different beast. Yeah, it's really fascinating. And part of me is still kind of shocked that we're even like writing about this. This is happening. And, you know, Twitter, as you mentioned, the revenues were 1.2 billion. It's up 16% compared to the same quarter a year ago. However, the revenue performance fell short of analyst expectations. Yes, Twitter has been on this long push to double its revenue and boost its user base. Having a middling earnings report, having to restate some user numbers, not great. Well, I'll leave us with one more thing, Mary, and before we move on, people were saying that maybe they accepted the offer to sell Twitter because they were going to have a disastrous Q1 report. Not really, turns out. This is not, I mean, it's not stellar, but it's not a catastrophe. It's not like a a flop. Right. That hypothesis has kind of fallen by the wayside. And just because this issue and this saga are not done, I presume something silly will happen over the weekend and we'll talk about it some more. I'm a little tired of it. I'm a little bored of it. I don't know how everyone else feels, but. Same, but stock just. Before we end this, is that 49.49, currently up slightly, but still significantly lower than the 52-week high, which if I recall correctly, was about 73. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Elon's offering a lot less than that for the company. Essentially, the the argument is that Twitter, like many tech companies, reached a valuation point kind of in late 2021 that was perhaps exuberant. So later on, its decline is perhaps more realistic. And so Elon is paying a premium. Mm -hmm. I have various opinions about this, but we don't need to get into the numbers. They said yes. You know, so it doesn't matter how the proposal was done, even if we find it to be, say, tacky. All right, let's move on to a couple of startups. The first one is Umaro, which is, I was excited by this one, Marianne. So tell people, (laughs) one, why we care, and two, how they're going about making this bacon equivalent. Okay, so Umaro is a startup that Brian Heater covered, who, by the way, is extremely talented reporter for TechCrunch. And why we thought this was so fascinating is this company essentially wants to take seaweed and make it a viable protein source, but in different forms. Not just like eating seaweed, but turning it into bacon, which if you see the picture at the top of the story, I mean, I was blown away, really. It actually looks enticing. It looks pretty good. It looks like bacon. I would not know that it was seaweed. The founder, co-founder, she says seaweeds can produce more protein per unit area versus conventional crops with no fresh water, no synthetic fertilizer. So it's good for the environment. So that's another big plus. And basically they're wanting to outcompete soy on price and volume and match or exceed its quality, including taste and functionality. So this is pretty fascinating. I kept waiting for the catch in all of this. I'm like, okay, so it's more efficient to farm. It's got a complete protein. They think they can scale it. It's going to be better than soy. And I was just, there was no real downside. The only thing that I could find in our coverage of this that made me sit a little bit askance, if you will, was that there might be in the bacon, some sort of like background hint of seaweed. Right, right. And Brian, he did 
addressed that. He said he had not yet tested the bacon, that he was told by the co-founder that, well, of course, this is what she said, the seaweed taste is subtle, and, you know, you may or may not feel it there. I personally hate seaweed, so if I could tell there was any seaweed in it, I would not eat this. So I really think until one of us tries it, I'm going to remain a little bit skeptical. Okay, yes, yes to all of that, but Mm -hmm. we can get used to things. So whenever I buy oat milk, I just kind of buy whatever's available, and I have a list of favorites, but often the one that I want will be out, so I have to pick a different oat milk. And there's this one that I currently have. I forget if it's Planet Oat or Oatly or one of the other brands. It tastes a little bit like grass. It's the only one that's like this, and it's not a good flavor. Mm -hmm. But when I want to have cereal in the morning and I only have this oat milk, I just kind of go through it. And I've already kind of like lost the annoyance with that slight differential in in the flavor profile because I want to have a liquid in my cereal. And so to me, like, I think I'm willing to meet this bacon halfway or more just because (laughs) I know how bad porcine production is for the environment, having been in 4-H as a kid. But I still want to try it. I'm curious. Yeah. Umaro, if you hear this, let us know where we can buy some so we can uh, we can test it out. We'll even do a live taste test. That'd be hilarious. Yeah. And I forgot to mention it has raised money. It's raised like several million dollars to try to scale this. So looks like others believe in it as well. Yeah. Last thing on this, Marianne, when we think about meat alternatives or alt proteins, whatever you want to call them, are you more on the side of lab-grown meat being the future? Or are you more on the side of what Umaro is doing, which is like, we're going to take a plant and abuse it until it looks like meat? I mean, I, I'm, I'm probably more for the plant, but just because I feel like it's still it's coming from real food, something that already existed. So I think I'd lean toward that. And by the way, I love oat milk and I have it every day. And I use Moala. Oh, so, thank you. Yeah. Anyway, but yeah, I would I would lean toward the plant based. All right. I think we're all going to end up being vegan some point in time. And I'm not not... Now, now oh, we're just zooming the in on the bacon. Yeah. Oh, there it is. Ladies and gentlemen, if you were on the Twitter space, what you are missing <laughs> out on is is our dear friend Julio zooming in on bacon. <laughs> that actually doesn't look better the more you zoom in. Now that I now that we're doing this. In fact, it turns out if you zoom in on bacon that's made out of seaweed, it looks slightly ah, there we go. Rubbery. Anyways, let's move on to my favorite topic, which is self-driving cars. Oh so, yeah. Remember, do you remember when like Uber and Lyft and everyone were all bashing their heads in to hire all the engineers because everyone thought this technology was going to come out in like 18 months? Right. Yep. Well, it turns out that didn't happen. No. That was like, what, five years ago? Yes, that was five years ago. Sadly, (laughs) self-driving cars are always about five years away, no matter what time you look. But there is modest incremental progress, which gives me hope that we are eventually going to have self-driving cars before we figure out how to have net energy positive fusion reactions. So, yay. The latest news is that Pony.ai, a Chinese autonomous driving mega unicorn, if you will, (laughs) uh, has gotten a license for autonomous vehicles in Guangzhou in China without being partnered with a taxi company. So there have been some pilots in other Chinese cities in certain restricted setups, if you will, but they've always been partnered with other companies. So what Pony.ai has is kind of independence in this major city, which is in the techish region of China, if I'm holding up my geography correctly. Mm -hmm. It's a step, Marianne. It's another incremental step towards a future in which we can get into a car and sit in the back and the car drives us to the cafe. I'm still not on board with it. It's going to take a while. You and I have argued about this for years. You live in Austin. It's flat. You should be the biggest advocate. I can't trust. I just don't feel like I can trust these autonomous vehicles. And Pony.ai is starting out with humans, by the way. It's like, yes, yeah. it's it's kind of easing its way into this. Uh, well, I think because they're being forced to. But I mean, like, you know, I, I think you can get into a Waymo car in, is Phoenix? I think it's Phoenix? Without a human driver. So we're starting, I, I think people thought we were going to show up and conquer the space and have it. I think instead we're going to kind of nibble in from the edges slowly until we've consumed the issues one by one. But Marianne, we're going to talk about teenagers later on the show because they come up in a product sense. But now that you and I are no longer 
16. What's your opinion on 16-year-olds being given the ability to drive a multi-ton car at high speeds on highways? Okay, well, I'm about to have this, you know, happen know. in our household. Um, <laughs> it's terrifying. Right. <laughs> So would you rather have your children out there in, you know, an Escalade that weighs 80 billion pounds or being driven around by Pony.ai or Waymo? That's a very, very, very tough question, Alex. I mean, I don't know. I, I'm i still just not on board with self-driving, autonomous vehicles. It all still scares me. Like, technology is amazing. But, but <laughs> I cannot imagine being in a car and just trusting it to, like, do everything and do it safely. Are you a good driver? I actually am a damn good driver. Yeah. Okay. I had a major lead foot though when I was younger, but then kids sort of stopped that. Okay. Mm -hmm. So much like my spouse, you're a very good driver. Do you have a good sense of direction? Mm, That's what GPS is for. Okay. Fair enough. Okay. As a distracted, blind, lost person, (laughs) driving around the city is not, I'm not good at it. My, 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 my spouse is, we live in the city she was born in. She's super detail oriented. She's very, you know, focused. And so for her, driving is great. And she's, she does all of our driving, like all of it. She can parallel park. I can't. <laughs> and so for me, I'm like self-driving cars. is a safer way for me to get around versus for you. I think you're coming from a much higher place of confidence. And so it's probably like, why would I give up versus for me? It's why would I gain or why yeah. can't I gain? So, right. But I think no matter what, I feel like this is eventually going to happen. I got better get used to the idea. And at some point it's going to just be commonplace. All right. Let's talk about some bad news, Marianne. Yeah. Last year, we spent so much time covering the rise of consumer fintech, the savings and investing boom, the never-ending saga of how everyone was buying and selling stocks and crypto and so forth. Robinhood was part of that story. Robinhood went up, they went public, and then what happened? Yeah, well, you know, things went downhill and they've just kept going downhill, it feels (laughs) like, right? 2021 started out with the GameStop saga, did Mm -hmm. it not? Wasn't that, that feels like a long time ago. That's, That's right, yeah. Yeah, but so actually Robinhood only went public last July. Yep. It wasn't that long ago. No. Yeah. Right now it's trading at what? About $10 a share? Yeah. 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 Went public <laughs> at 38, I think. 38. And then went up to 85 at some point in time. And it has since lost seven-eighths of its value. And then that leads us to the latest news story, which is that they're going to be laying off a chunk of their staff. Yeah. 9% to be exact. And I think how many people that that amount to about 300? Yeah. That's our math. I think they have Mm -hmm. about 3,400 employees. So just under 10% of that, about 300 people. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's quite a lot of folks. It's not an amputation. It's slightly more than a haircut is my read of this, Yeah, but probably customer support. If they have lower trading volumes, you know, you're going to let some staff go, but what a step down from the company. And, you know, a year ago, this was one of the hottest startups and unicorns in the market really bar none, I think. Yeah, it was. I think though Robinhood for a while has been getting a lot of kind of negative publicity too, though, where there's been a lot of accusations of not being responsible and like letting people just get on there and start trading because they make money right off of all the trades. So there's been accusations of the company not doing it responsibly enough. I think I one time covered a lawsuit, a class action suit by people who were really pissed off because they claimed they were not informed of things that they should have known and lost money. Yeah. So I don't know. Like, I think Robinhood may have good intentions. I'm not 100% sure what's like all behind this decline. I know that they did have like hyper growth, like the pandemic lockdowns, low interest rates and fiscal stimulus that was happening. And now like all of that's not here anymore. People aren't really locked down. Interest rates are rising, you know, so... It finds itself like many other companies that kind of boomed during the pandemic in a difficult spot. Yeah. And I think the issue that I have here is that it didn't generate a lot of material long-term value. The company really grew. Oof. Uh, if you're on the hop and you can see this, if you're not, Julio just threw up a chart Ooh. of the history, the trading history of yeah. Robinhood. 
And it's kind of a horror film if you look at it and just kind of go from left to right as time passes. It's been a complete mess for the company. And I think it goes to show that there was a mistake in the market that private investors and private entrepreneurs made in which they expected and began to treat consumer fintech trading revenues as if they were essentially equivalent to software as a service or kind of modern software incomes. SaaS revenues are durable and tend to expand over time. Consumer fintech trading revenues are high margin and lovely, but they don't have that same durability and they don't have the same expansion built into them as SaaS does. And so I think what we just had was a misclassification or a misvaluation based on a misclassification of what Robinhood is. And this impacts Coinbase and eToro and Acorns and Dave and on and on and on and on. And on. But it, it turns out that you know these companies just aren't worth what people thought they were. It's now cheaper than it was as a private company, right. shockingly enough. Right. And like a lot of companies, they hired a lot over the past like couple of years. I think they admitted to growing their headcount almost six times from 700 to nearly 3,800 wow. over from 2019 to 2021. Reminds me a little bit of Better, which went crazy hiring, over hiring, just being short-sighted a little bit, you know, thinking this pandemic was going to last forever or something, and it didn't. Uh, and anyway, so it's not, when you look at this and you realize just how, I mean, that's 3,100 people that they hired yeah. uh, in a couple of years. It's not shocking there were some layoffs. Do you feel bad for the people affected? Of course. Uh, yeah. It's not the only company that's laid off. Of course, as we've talked about Better.com last week, had a layoff of an estimated 1,200 or so more people. And another company in the digital mortgage space, Blend, had a layoff last week of about, let's see, it was 200 people or 10% yes. of its workforce. Which, so I hadn't heard of Blend. Blend is a publicly traded mortgage processing company, fair enough to say? <laughs> Well, like they power the banks like Wells Fargo, for example, their applications to process to actually like conduct the mortgages online. So like, you know, they're trying to help these banks make it be more up to date with technology. So if you get a mortgage through Wells Fargo, it'll be powered by Blend, for example. Okay. So you're doing more things online. Thanks to Blend. Okay, I wanted to clarify that because in the case of Better.com, we saw mm -hmm. a company scale rapidly on the back of mortgage and refinancing volume. And it sounds like Blend also scaled in the same way. And then both of them had been kind of like sideswiped by rising interest rates. And I think you make a pretty good point. Did they think that the set of conditions that they were raised in, if you will, would last forever? And if they didn't think that, how did they get so far off yeah. base? And if they didn't think that, how could they have not? So yeah. I, I'm mad either way. I'm not sure. I have interviewed the CEO, Nima, I'm sorry, more than more than once. Very smart guy. I think the company had a lot of potential. I'm pretty surprised at its financials, though. It's never been profitable. Went public. Was it last year that it went public? I think so. I, yeah. I can double check that, but yeah. In yeah, went public. Lost $169 million last year. Double their net loss. Yeah, double the net loss. And yeah. they're actually expecting revenue to decline by 31% this year. So that doesn't look very good well, for the company. It doesn't look very good, but it's also not uniquely in that situation. So Coinbase and, and Robinhood are either expected to report flat year over year or slightly down revenue results, if I'm recalling all the numbers correctly. So to see True. Blend struggle as better has struggled and so forth. I mean, we're seeing companies that did ride the pandemic up now suffer from either retreat or at a minimum indigestion mm -hmm. as the unique conditions that fueled their rise end up actually going away. And so the way that we've been talking about this internally is it shows that there was a demand pull forward as opposed to a demand, like aggregate demand growth or demand right. growth for a longer period of time. I'm right. butchering that, but you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah, I know what you mean. Instacart is another example, right? Yes. That like had a boom and, then, you know, it's sort of hop in. Netflix. 
Yeah, so this, this is a pretty widespread phenomenon, and I don't know why we're all a little bit shocked by it. I mean, we should have seen it coming. And quite frankly, I think we kind of did here on Equity. We certainly talked more than once about how all these highs were not sustainable. At some point, things were going to have to come down to earth. And it feels like, though, it came like, poof, it was a quick drop rather than like this slow, gradual yeah. ride. <laughs> so, so two things. One, <laughs> equity is not financial advice. Just throwing that out there as a general boilerplate. Yeah, of course not. Yeah, we don't trade. We own index funds for a reason. And two, Marianne, have you read The Sun Also Rises? I don't remember, honestly. Okay, it's uh, there's a quote in there. A guy says, how did you go bankrupt? And he said, slowly, then all at once. And I feel like that applies pretty closely here. Because if you go back to our coverage in December, we're like, wow, you know, tech stocks are getting hammered. And then January, we're like, wow, they're really getting hit. And then now we're like, well, you know, so it's slowly and then right. it becomes clear. Yep, yeah. it's exactly. You mentioned how at Robinhood there was concerns about teens using it and possibly people getting access to financial products that were maybe a little bit advanced or esoteric for their age or um, sophistication. In the case of Robinhood, they made way more money per trade off of options than they did off of stocks. And so there was a tension, if you will, between what they were trying to protect users from and what they wanted them to do. Right. And that work to protect teens is actually, it turns out, a pretty big business in the fintech world. There's a couple of companies, including Copper and Step, that are aimed at teens, essentially, and they're taking different paths on the crypto question. Right, right. So I wrote about this week, Copper, which started out as like a digital bank aimed at the teens demographic. Yeah. I wrote about them last year. They'd raised a few million dollars. And then they came back to me and they're like, hey, we raised again. It was a preemptive round. They weren't necessarily looking to raise. But before we get into its teen focus in crypto, I have to very quickly share how this preemptive round came about because I think okay. it's, it's interesting. Fiat Ventures led the round. So Fiat Ventures is an arm of an agency, kind of like a marketing growth agency aimed at like fintechs, insurtechs called Fiat Growth. And it was started by an ex, I think, ex-Chime person, Alex Harris, if I remember his name correctly. Okay. All right. So then apparently Copper was using Fiat Growth's services. Fiat Growth was like, damn, this company's growing a lot. And so through its venture arm, it decided to lead this investment, which was a $29 million round. Impressively, Copper said it's grown to over 800,000 users in less than a year. It has a real grassroots approach to recruitment, like it it goes to high schools and you know things like that, kind of the offline method. We've talked about more than once that it feels like more companies are adopting to attract users. It seems to be working for them. They've also announced that they're planning to move into not just being a digital bank, but allowing teens to invest in stocks, mutual funds, and crypto. So that's what they're moving into. Step is another startup that Anita Ramaswamy, who is amazing. Anita's amazing. Yeah, she wrote very recently. And I'll let you say the the subhead if you'd like, Alex, because you had so much fun with it earlier. So Anita wrote a great, <laughs> a great subhead, which read, silly skeptics, crypto is for kids. <laughs> which, if you don't know, is a flip on an old commercial for a particularly sugary cereal called Tricks. And there was a rabbit who was always trying to steal the tricks from the kids. And they would always say, silly rabbit, tricks are for kids. Right. If you didn't grow up in the 90s, that probably doesn't mean a lot to you. But to me, it's hilarious. So back yeah, to you, Yeah, it was clever, I thought. So yeah, Step very recently announced that it was also offering a product for investing in equities and crypto on its app. It's going to be called Step Investing. It is interesting, A, that so many fintechs are now allowing for people to invest in crypto. And especially 
it seems to be very popular in this teen space. And one of the things, and this is where we tie back into Robin Hood, is that the Copper CEO very directly stated that he felt like what Copper is doing is giving teens a place to invest in crypto safely and with more parental control and with yes. some actual like education and guidance. Whereas on Robin Hood, they may be doing it like under their parents' accounts, just kind of randomly. So they really did just sort of slam Robin Hood and say, look, we're giving teens a way to invest in crypto, but more responsibly than say Robin Hood, parents can see what they're doing, they can set controls, and they're hoping to be first to market. So we'll see how this race goes. It's not very punk rock to let teens buy crypto, but only with their parents say so, because <laughs> that's going to limit the market is my read. Can you imagine going to your parent, let's say like uh, you're 15 and your parents are, I don't know, 50 and you're like, Hey, I want to put my allowance into Bitcoin. They're going to be like, what's that? Maybe. <laughs> I mean, so is this a way to like clamp down or what's the play here? I mean, I don't, think so. I mean, I can kind of see this. You know, my son is a teenager. He's been into crypto for over a year and knows probably more about it than I do. So if he came to me and said, you know, I want to invest in crypto, I want you to be a part of it. Like, I would support it. Your son, though, is very lucky to have as a parent, <laughs> the best known fintech reporter <laughs> that I know. So Yes, I'm, I'm sure you would. Yeah, but I mean, I'm thinking about like people in Oklahoma. The average person. No, you're right. You're right. I've had friends and family who actually text him for advice on crypto stuff. So to your point, the average person, especially like in the middle age bracket, yeah. they're not super crypto savvy. So that is a good point. But again, Copper claims and says that it like is offering education. It's not just letting them blindly invest. And that's okay. where it feel like it differentiates itself from, say, Robinhood, which I, I'm fine you know. with this. This okay. is fine. I've, I've been really just stalling. So I'm trying to make a smells like teen something joke and I can't figure out what the words be like leverage losses. I don't know. Yeah. Smells like teen bankruptcy. There you go. Figured it out. <laughs> Copper recently raised, I think a $29 million round and step put together a $100 million series C, which I bring up because Steph Curry put some money into that series C. And last night the Warriors sent the nuggets out of the playoffs because uh, the nuggets are trash and the Warriors are amazing. Again. So, yeah. Wow. Yeah. The Warriors are amazing. I did fall asleep before the fourth quarter because I had work this morning, but I tried really hard. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about chain reaction really quick, fidelity, and then bounce because we're a little bit short on time. But uh, our friends, Anita Ramaswamy and Lucas Matney, and also I think Jacqueline Melnick have a podcast out called Chain Reaction. It's kind of like, it's the sister show to equity. It's all about crypto. So if you feel like we don't talk enough about crypto and equity, you can go check that out. They have a new episode out Thursday of every week. And frankly, I'm pretty excited about this one because I am constantly having to learn more about the decentralized yeah. economy, Marianne. And Same. so another source is good. It's quite complex and Lucas and Anita are super smart and fun to listen to. So check it out. Yeah. Now, just to close off our little story today, Fidelity is going to offer crypto in retirement accounts this year. So now, Marianne, instead of putting your 401k into a target date fund or an index fund or a mutual fund or a basket of stocks that you pick, you can put it into Bitcoin. And my question to you is what portion of your 401k would you put into Bitcoin <laughs> if you weren't beholden to journals and rules? Yeah. I mean, I don't know, Alex. I think, A, this is proof of just how mainstream crypto has become. You know, and it's come a long way in the past few years. So True. this was this was a huge deal. I mean, Fidelity is like one of the top retirement 
providers in the country. And now that it's allowing this, it's a big win for the crypto space, I think. I don't know how much I would contribute in Bitcoin to my 401k. And I'm very interested and curious to see how much others do over time. I am curious. Anita had another great headline about this. She wrote that having some crypto in your 401k is neither irrational nor exuberant. Kind of like flipping the old Alan Greenspan quote from the dot-com boom in the 90s that there was irrational exuberance in the market. I'm of two minds about this. Like if I wasn't a journalist and I did have complete flexibility in what I could invest in, I think I would put maybe one or 2% of my 401k into crypto as like a back pocket thing, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. like, you know, big funds, family offices, universities have like an allocation for exotics, which is where VCs get their money from LPs and so forth. Right. So as you can see here on the screen now, the price of Bitcoin has been pretty stable for a bit. Yeah. It's been bouncing around the kind of like 40 to, to 60 range for some time after a boom in kind of the early 2021, late 2020 time period. So, you know, it hasn't lost all of its value recently. So maybe it's sufficiently stable as to be an asset. To, ah, I'm struggling here. I'm trying. I don't know. It's been historically very volatile. So like, you know, that's one of the reasons I think people might be hesitant to long-term invest in it. I'd say you're right. Recently, it's kind of leveled off. It hasn't been as up and down as we've seen over the past few years. I don't know if that's going to continue. We don't know. But I kind of agree with you. Like, it doesn't hurt to have a little bit, you know, a little bit of skin in the game. You never know what's going to happen. So I don't think it would be outrageous to dedicate a small portion of your portfolio. But like I said, I'm curious to see as to like what percentage people would actually want going into Bitcoin and, you know, how that's going to play out over time. Yeah. I'll just say this. I've been saying Bitcoin, but I really mean crypto. Cryptocurrency in generally. Versus a a single particular chain or token. And if I was picking, I think I'd do ETH over Bitcoin. Just because Bitcoin feels... Kind of like the horse and buggy of crypto versus like a Model T, if you will. Right, right, right. And now that we've not pissed anyone off with that (laughs) comment, we can wrap up, Marianne. As always, an absolute pleasure. Equity is live here every other week. We will be back in two weeks, which should be a good time. And we will have Natasha with us back next week. So the whole crew shall be reformed. But Marianne, you and I, it's always good to have an excuse to chat just the better of us. Of course. Always so much fun. Thank you. All right. And we can stop. It's the worst outro ever. And we're done.